Hello and welcome to Got the Runs, the podcast with all the sexual chemistry of a tiger and a guy with a squid head. Uh, I mean, you can just say a furry. They're pretty upfront about <laughs> the sexual connotations there. I thought the idea was that we are describing two things which do not have sexual chemistry. But if you feel we have sexual chemistry, then that's, I guess. No, actually, that's not fine with me. <laughs> I listen to every podcast assuming there's sexual chemistry involved. <laughs> but the voice you heard, let's let's get that in right off the top. For the second time ever on Got the Runs, we have an all-star guest, much like Scott McCloud. He is a, a titan in the world of comics. <laughs> he looks confused right now. From the Can I Kick It podcast, Emilio Diaz is here. Welcome, Emilio. Thank you for having me on. This is a great podcast. I'm glad to talk about some comic books. Are you at all intimidated by the fact that you, it's literally you and Scott McCloud are currently the slate of guests that we have had? Well, no, not really, because it's like <laughs> people who listen to podcasts have to get used to not always being fulfilled and satisfied by the guests who are on the podcast. So that's just like, <laughs> like I think I will do a bad job, but I am not. I, I don't think. I don't think that is my problem as much as it it's your problem and the people listening's <laughs> problem. Well, you've uh, you're you're getting in the got the run spirit and setting the bar nice and low, which we also <laughs> gonna, like to do. I was gonna say you're you're really setting the pole. So if Scott is on one end, you are the other end. Like you are setting the low end of what a guest can be, and then everyone else will fill in the middle. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and speaking of filling in the middle, today we are talking about. Something that I would personally place in the middle of Brian K. Vaughn's bibliography. We're actually getting towards the end of it, chronologically speaking. But today we are talking about The Private Eye, the 10 issue. Would you you call it a limited series, David? I would call it a limited series, yes. And obviously the big thing here, made with, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have the name for you, Marcos Martins? Martin. Martin. But the big thing, of course, is that this was distributed through Panel Syndicate, which was created, basically, in order to serve this comic. And I feel like you can't really talk about this comic without talking about the distribution method, both because, like, that is kind of the newsworthiness element of it to some degree, and also because, like, there there are some thematic tie-ins, certainly. Yes, um, the version I have is like the print version that they eventually put out after, like originally they were like, there's no plans to ever like publish it in print. But they like delight, they they printed a bunch of their emails between each other from like the development process in the back because they were like, this is a book about privacy. So we're going to publicly like air our emails. <laughs> and it was like the first thing they had been talking about collaborating because Vaughn worked with Martin a few different times. And he was like, I've got this idea that I want to do for a book about like, basically, what if the internet ruined everybody's lives? And Marcos Martin was like, it should be digital exclusive. <laughs> so that was that was the genesis of that idea. There's, there's a thing that I saw that Panel Syndicate had published this like Walking Dead comic, which was like a, like a, a Walking Dead one shot. And then the, it, it turned out that the reason that they did this was because it was like a broker deal between them and Image. So Image could publish the physical copy of Private Eye, which to me, like, I feel like you hear about that a lot with like movie studios where it's like they wanted to use the Jurassic Park theme in Titanic. And so James Cameron directed the trailer for Jurassic World. 
That's a real life example, by the way. <laughs> James Cameron famously directed the trailer for Jurassic World. <laughs> Incredible, yeah. yes. I mean, it, it happens all across the entertainment industry. Obviously, the famous example of real-life person Al Michaels getting traded for the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. So, <laughs> Disney, yeah, uh, Disney wanted to make the video game Epic Mickey, and they wanted the bad guy in Epic Mickey to be Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, which is like some early Walt Disney creation. But I forget who had the... I forget it was like Universal NBC or whatever. And NBC was like, sure, we'll give you the rights to that. But you have to give us Al Michaels. And they traded a real-life person. <laughs> it's like one of the craziest things to happen, IMO. Also, so it's just like a lot of weird back-channeling. A very, a very lopsided trade, I will say, if it was in service <laughs> of Epic Mickey. What was the sequel to Epic Mickey 2 subtitled? Does anyone remember? Kingdom Hearts, uh, something. Well, <laughs> no, Kingdom Hearts has an epic. The power of two. Is of course. Sure. <laughs> Me every day on the bathroom. Am I right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes. That that was the fact that I discovered while we were together last weekend. Uh, I was reading and started to chuckle very hard, and it was because I had learned that. Uh, yeah, they had no plans to publish a print edition, and Robert, like, he was he was writing Saga Image at this time, and Robert Kirkman was like, "Just publish it, like, we'll we'll publish it." And he was like, "Okay, we'll publish it, but you have to let us do a Walking Dead story through Panel Syndicate, and we get to keep all the profits." And he was like, uh, "Okay," which again, <laughs> that seems like a lopsided deal to me. Like the I don't, I don't know how much of a cut Image was taking from the the print publication of this book, which was a big seller, but. The whole point of going like the image creator owned route is that most of the money goes back in your pocket and they have to let him do a walking dead story as well. Tough sell in my opinion. Right. Um, but let's talk about panel syndicate because so the whole thing with panel syndicate, to my understanding, David, maybe you can elucidate us a little further. I assume you were tracking this at the time it was happening, but it's so it's a DRM free pay what you want system or service for releasing comics i guess initially they weren't really intending to do or not specifically intending to do anything with it beyond releasing private eye right like they didn't really know if it was going to turn into something yeah it was like a, a sort of bold experiment that where they were like hopefully this will be something that works and then other creators can also use it as a distribution method but at the time like again in these emails in the back <laughs> there's one where Vaughn is basically like, so how long are you cool like not getting paid? <laughs> because like if this doesn't work, like it might be a while before you get paid. And like if we want to just go to a publisher, like a book publisher, we can probably still retain a lot of the creative freedom and we can also get an advance so that your like new baby can <laughs> eat. <laughs> but um yeah, it's it's actually more sort of uh, Marcus Martin's thing. Um, they both have like subsequently done future projects, but the reason that he was pushing it and passionate about it and willing to not be paid for like a year to get it off the ground was that he had already been kind of thinking about doing like a pay what you want distribution model, and he was like Brian K. Vaughn, like huge name in comics. This is a perfect guy to kind of like launch this service with, where like I'm not really worried about it being profitable like i'm pretty sure it will be profitable with his name attached and like the two of us collaborating uh but yeah it wasn't a sure thing it is sort of seen as like a the the spot for 
um, like pay what you want. I don't think other places have really tried to follow that model um, other than like Humble Bundle does like comic bundles that are also DRM free. I mean, this is this is 2013. So this is what, like five years after In Rainbows or whatever yeah. Radiohead album they did a similar thing with. Yeah, I feel like that was the first time that you really heard about like that concept breaking into the mainstream. And then Humble Bundle, I think, is probably the most prominent example of like the pay what you want method. I mean, like it's it's interesting because it seems like maybe there needs to be some level of cachet behind it. Like you need a certain level of fame before you can make that happen. But then like like if if you have that like built in fan base, then you can like use that method and be successful with it. It seems like. Yeah. yeah. Also, you explained that it was more Marcos Martin saying sort of like clarify some stuff to me that not to like get into our entire thoughts on the thing. I was just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, Marcos Martin is trying really hard. And this seems like a thing that Brian K. Vaughn was like, if nobody reads this, it's fine. <laughs> he he is going off in this one for sure. Uh, I, oh. I'm a like Marcos Martin fan generally, which like he's quite stylized which isn't usually necessarily my cup of tea but for whatever reason he does it for me um and he's definitely like flexing hard on this one yeah and i i was gonna say and we'll go back to marcus martin for sure um but like it it almost doesn't feel like like i don't feel vaughn's voice that strongly in this book especially compared to like we've just been going through like his big hitters in terms of like they're the works he's most associated with they're the works that he is like most passionate about in terms of having done like saga ex machina and then i guess wise a little before that but like having those three big ones going through like i feel like you don't hear like his voice quite as much i guess in the story because like again similar to why similar to ex machina it's sort of like an alternate history which is still like very closely tied to contemporary issues yeah, uh, I'm. I'm. Uh, I think I'm probably. It sounds like a little higher on it story wise than you guys. I think it finds a bit of a sweet spot between like the, we've talked about like the world building and saga. We don't necessarily find to be like the most cohesive or most satisfying thing. Where like in this, I think he's got a strong concept that you know is evocative, and there's some really fun ideas in it. And like since it's rooted in our world he's got sort of like that firmer kind of foundation to build off of as opposed to like a whole cloth creation like saga and since it's also rooted in our world like it's easier to make some of those like sort of pop culture references and things like that that in saga is like okay they're gonna have phones so that i can make jokes about phones still you know he's he's got like the the world to to still sort of refer back to without being like wholly reliant on it in the same way that like y or ex machina like really lean on pop culture for a lot of their references and jokes yeah for sure and like I guess since I haven't been on the podcast before, it is like a little necessary for me to say, I really like Brian K. Vaughn. I really loved Why when I read it. That was like a while ago, maybe six or seven years ago. And I have read half of Saga and I really loved that. And that I sort of, I read this when it came out. Like when it came out, it was like, this like hit like right when I was my brief comics period. (laughs) And I was like, sure, a comic I I can basically download for no money, but not feel bad about it because that's sort of what they want to do with it. Sure. 
I think this time rereading it, I enjoyed it more than when I read it back then. And I both times I've been like, yeah, this is pretty cool. Cool. The, the art is going off and the story is like sometimes really there and sometimes not. It is. It It's definitely like weird that he was like, all right, time for my noir detective story. <laughs> like, yeah, that isn't necessarily a wheelhouse that I would have thought he was necessarily like particularly interested in. And maybe that's why it has all these kind of trappings of sort of like, um, like a bubblegum Blade Runner, I guess is how I'd sort of characterize it to, to sort of, I guess, in, enhance his interest or his engagement or what he feels like he can do without just being sort of like a boilerplate detective story. Yeah. And I, I mean... I love noir and I love detective stories. I love just like even like the dumbest like TV procedural version of it. I like lap up. But I think the reason why I don't think this story like ever gets to being like one of his great works is because I don't think he has an amazing handle on that main character beyond just like this is a detective guy who like doesn't trust people. Yeah. And I also think like it is a little limited um, by the length of it sort of like yeah, i feel like the scope is a little bit limited like we start to see bits of like backstory and stuff like that towards the end of the book uh but i'm, I'm glad we're getting into this because i famously amelia we've talked about this before yes. i have my my hot take that i don't like noir and i see everyone shaking their head at me <laughs> truly one of the most baffling things that you have ever said to me but yeah i mean like it's just i i don't know what it is exactly if i find the stockness of the characters and like the characterizations to be a little bit like off-putting or if I just don't like I mean I, I will say like the mystery genre has never been like my most favorite of genres I I don't know I, I like an investigation every now and then but I feel like <laughs> I feel like it's it's more the the aesthetic and the patina of noir that like really tends to put me off and so I think that is definitely a contributing factor in me, like, not having a huge amount of love for this. Although, like, I do really like it. Like, it it's an execution of noir that I like. And I think a lot of that comes down to the art and the way the world is presented. Because the, the concept, the basic premise is such a visually motivated premise that that then I think allows the art to, like, really express itself and, like, allow the themes and ideas to be expressed the art yeah for sure and it's like to, to be clear this come the conversation we had where that came up was we were talking about terminator one versus terminator two yeah and <laughs> me and basically another friend of ours was like terminator one is just so much better than terminator two it's just like such has such a great vibe and such a great feel and then terminator two is just like this blown out dumb action movie which is like good but not as on the same level and and chris was just like but i just don't think i like noir and then i basically <laughs> had to had to get up from my seat take a walk outside and just ponder what that meant because to me noir is such a fundamental storytelling thing that i respond to that it's just like it breaks my brain to even consider not being into it yeah i'm in the same boat it's like right up my alley to have as soon as there's a detective in a story, I'm like, I'm on board. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the idea, yeah, the, the fact that noir is what turns you <laughs> off of Terminator 1 <laughs> is okay. it's fascinating. Okay, well, we'll we'll do a brief foray to Can I Kick It? Just because it is, 
It is not a hot take that Terminator 2 is better than Terminator 1. No, when that's this, not a hot take. The hot episode, take is Terminator 1 is less appealing because it's too noir. I, I think that is why I don't like it. I mean, like, I I like aesthetic elements of noir, and especially because Terminator is a very, like, it's it's tech noir, as the, uh, as the famous club once said. Uh, so I, I think that aesthetically does appeal to me, but like David I mean, like, was confused. But to be clear, there is a club in Terminator One where she hides called oh, Techno Noir. Oh, right. <laughs> Not to be confused with Pinot Noir, mm, candy bar, etc. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm like I I don't think it's a hot take to say that I like Terminator Two better. Calling Terminator Two a big dumb action movie is very offensive <laughs> to me and to my sensibilities. And to be clear. I, this is not like my version of the noir thing. I like a big dumb action movie. I just think it's not a great one of those. Whereas Terminator One is very good at being what it's being. That's insane. Um, That's how I feel about Alien versus Aliens. That is, but the thing is that Alien, that and I really love Alien, and Alien is not a noir movie. It's just like a <laughs> sci-fi. Like they're both like basically slashers plus like another element. And I guess Terminator is also sci-fi. It has a Terminator in it. But mm-hmm. that I, if you're gonna distinguish Terminator between real. between Alien and Terminator, the big difference is that noir aesthetic, and so I think that's the uh, the demarcation point. But maybe I just need to watch rewatch Terminator. But let's uh, let's get into the the meat of this comic. I know we talked uh, <laughs> we talked last episode about how we need to do a better job of properly summarizing the comic. It's all right. We'll roll that out in the, our next miniseries. <laughs> Well, it's great that we chose this comic, which has, like, no... Like, its Wikipedia article is, like, one paragraph long. Uh, there's, like, no, like, guide or list of characters or anything like that. But let's try and just break down the story beats as best as we can briefly here. So the the big thing is, like, the premise of the world, which is that it's, what, 2075 or something like that? Uh, 2076, the tricentennial. Sure. And there was... The way they describe it is that the cloud burst and everyone's basically everyone's data was exposed, which has led to like a basically a large technological regression where people like are no longer trustful of like the inter or the internet doesn't exist. Yeah, I, I, I think the implication is actually that there's not really a technological regression. There's just like a like digital information regression because he kind of suggests at several points that actually it led to like this engineering boom because people were like, instead of being like, how can I refine this algorithm to make more money off of what people post on the internet? They were like, well, I guess it's back to flying cars. Yeah, that's <laughs> that conversation I think Daguerre has with, I forget what the little girl sidekick is call her melody where where she's like yeah after the bubble burst after the cloud burst or whatever technology actually got better and we got like hollow like flying cars or whatever because it stopped just going down that one specific avenue of technology yeah i mean like it's really it's this might be a very hot take but this technology that's supposed to be bringing us closer (laughs) together i almost kind of feel like it's taking us further apart i don't know what you guys think about that yeah, I feel that uh, <laughs> having cameras and microphones in our houses actually could potentially be risky, and uh, and who knows what people could do with that data. Uh, alluding to that broader point, I, I don't think that this is a, like, this technology that's supposed to be bringing us f- closer together is actually bringing us further apart thing. Like, I actually think that 
And, you know, it only really gets into it towards the end as well. But I think it does a pretty good job of sort of, like, balancing the debate and, like, presenting, like, that the, there are pros and cons to the internet, I think, is is the overarching theme of this uh, comic. That's, that's an interesting thought, because I think the difference why I responded to it better this time rather than the first time I read it is because the first time I was like, this seems almost too weirdly anti-internet and very, like, old man regressiveness. And now I'm sort of like, that might, they might be right about it. Maybe it, it we won't, would all be better <laughs> off if we just didn't have an internet. I say this on the internet. Well, it is also funny because, like, like you're saying, it came out in 2013. And then, like, the back of my print edition, which came out in 2015, the selling thing is, like, before Edward Snowden was a household name, before movie studios were hacked wide open, before oh. everyone's darkest secrets started spilling out of the cloud, there was the private eye. And so it's like, oh, yeah, the Edward Snowden thing was after this. Like, the Sony hack was after this. The, like, big, like, iCloud celebrity hack was after this. So it definitely, like has aged well i would say yeah and then that and the polk one on the back is like this is my favorite book and it's attributed to donald trump <laughs> julian assange <laughs> <laughs> okay speaking since we're talking about like people on the internet uh i just want to quickly throw in here that there's one part where they're they're talking to the reporter whose name i forget but the, drunk the very memorable name strunk well that's a that's a strunk and white reference shout uh-huh. out to my journalists Strunk in love? <laughs> my fiance. Sorry, my, go on. My yeah. striance. <laughs> uh, but there's one part where the editor says to Strunk that he's going to win a Greenwald, i.e. referring to yes, Glenn Greenwald, that, which yes. is like, that is aged very poorly. <laughs> uh, but the, so yes, the main premise, getting back to that, that is that after this cloudburst has happened, and I, I do think that there is... Uh, some implied level of technological regression because you know you see you see a lot of Kodak ads around. I saw an ad for like VHS tapes. Well, it's yeah, like, it's all analog, right? Right. And so, like, I I guess I don't quite get exactly like because like the idea of like digital isn't inherently related to network. Like, like why do laptops not exist anymore? I guess <laughs> is the main thing. Right. Or 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 like. Yeah, it could be that, like, perhaps Vaughn's, like, understanding of, like, the existence of computers, for instance, before the internet. <laughs> I, I, I don't imagine that he, like, doesn't realize that or anything. But it is interesting that it's like, all right, like, we're not going to have any digital anything or any computers, but, like, TV is okay for some reason. <laughs> because even, like, at the library, which is a place where you'd think, like, you can have like a library intranet, surely. Like that's that's not a big deal, right? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a situation where like the implications are maybe not like fully. It's, it's a saga thing where it's like the world building is done on like an as needed basis, right? I do also think that it, just from like reading the emails, it seems to me like he like kind of caught the concept of sometimes he gets these like ideas that sort of just like stick for him and he kind of like can't let go of it like the idea of like one day the cloud burst is like one of the first things he says in these emails and it's like five people say it in the comic where like obviously he just likes that image and likes to 
reuse it. And another thing that he mentions in the like kind of pitch ideas is like the world has become a literal series of tubes and like pneumatic tubes are used to like send information around and stuff. So I do think there's a degree to which he sort of likes that literalization of like, you know, how, how people described the internet so that it's like, it's boring if the idea is just like, now instead they use intranet <laughs> he's like no i want you to like show like the crazy network of tubes that now like runs around the city for people to send information yeah and that goes back i think to the like aestheticization of like you know having having the ideas of the comic be represented through the imagery of it for sure yeah though i don't know i guess it works for me to a certain extent even if it's not that specific because it's like well with the disguise aspect where it's just like, well, you think if you got rid of the internet, people wouldn't need the disguise thing. But it's more of a, like, people are so against it now that they're just, like, fully anti anything that had to do with the way things used to be. So it's like, they're not going to use a laptop because that is tied to computers and the mm-hmm. life they used to live with the internet. So they rather just, like, go all the way back just out of spite. Right. I I do feel like there's there's uh like a disconnect at some point with like the TV stuff that needs to be like they do, he does kind of address like that like PI is the only one who's sort of like don't you like think it's kind of crazy that like you're so worried about this but you have like a TV in your house that like can hear what you're saying and people are just kind of like yeah but uh whatever. Yeah, they're, they're, like they're, there's no circling of a square. There's just like you're you're so sense. scared that like you don't you, you don't make laptops anymore but you're cool with like this one thing that obviously still has like it's still basically a smart tv yeah well, I, maybe i feel like that's almost just like the people can't live with that they're freaking tv <laughs> they always want to go back to the idiot box the boob tube that's brian gave on my impression <laughs> yeah that's exactly how, how he sounds like i would imagine and it's like because if they go, if if it was just like they were just t- normal TVs, then that would like sort of make sense. Because it's like you're sort of applying some level of like Fallout style retro futurism to it of just like, mm-hmm. what if we just like advance technology from some random point in the past before this all happened? But like, yeah, that the the voice control aspect of it is where it just like completely falls apart. Well, they do. They they are like very very clear. There's, like, a scene directly where they talk about that, where it's, like, oh, they're only receivers, like, there's nothing, it's a very, like... Right, the engineer is, like, sir, I found something troubling. They're not just receivers. It's a very, like, Facebook, like, where, like, it's, like, here's why we aren't, like, freakishly terrible. So, again, (laughs) you give them slight points for that being pre-Snowden. Yeah, definitely, like, for 2013, this is, like quite cutting edge i would say mm-hmm. um we're doing a great job of summarizing what the comic <laughs> is about as always but yes as emilio alluded to basically after this cloud burst and everyone's the idea is everyone's secrets are revealed everyone's lives are ruined because like basically all everyone's dirty laundry gets aired simultaneously and so in addition to this sort of technological regression there's also this element of identities where people will have multiple identities people not everyone, but a lot of people will wear masks in public, will not reveal their real names, will adopt a number of different pseudonyms and like masks in order to fit their pseudonyms in order like depending on 
the identities that they wish to project, which I think is like the main thematic and artistic thrust of the book for sure. Yes. Uh, And of course, we have the conceit that I think he is most enamored with and in love with, which is uh, journalists are now the police. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) that is the other big thing that's like, I cannot tell a lie. I love it. (laughs) I don't know how you guys feel about it. I'm all about it. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, politically, I think I would have to like sit with it for like a a century to try and make it track in a way that's like... (laughs) not weird in my mind but as again as a person who like my two favorite genres of saying is like detective noir story and also journalist tries to figure a thing out it's just like yeah you brought it all together this is perfect just like when it's like the feds are here and it's like a cnn anchor i'm like (laughs) (laughs) it is also and again the their highest honor is the greenwald (laughs) yeah uh yeah i mean like that's probably that's probably the biggest example of like the world building not like the I feel like the aesthetic interests of the world building are usually like prioritized over the like logical <laughs> thrust of the world building because like yeah. it's like if you really it's like so there aren't police and like like how does this work exactly then like it, it falls apart very quickly <laughs> why aren't they just called the police but in terms of like the aesthetic element of it, like it it works really really well. I would agree with that. And the, it is, the, it's great that like Strunk looks like Sam Spade, except he has like a press card in his fedora. <laughs> Another random world building thing that they do at one point, like the Greenwald thing. You said this has nothing to do with the like journalism thing, but I just thought about it and I think I had to get it out. Where they talk about like, oh, things haven't been this way since the since the Paul administration. And I'm like, like Ron Paul? <laughs> I was like, who is that supposed to be? Like, and I was like, I was like, this came out in 2013, so this cannot be a Jake Paul joke. No, it's no. all it's it's either Ron or Rand. Ron yeah. Paul, yeah. And I'm just like, what what's that? It, it, it's just, <laughs> this comic is just chock full of things where I'm just like, what are you I, I, I just have 19 questions about this and, and and most of them were like why would you what led you to this but that i think that actually tracks now that i'm thinking about it because a true like i'm very stupid and i was like i can't crack this i just gotta move on like it's not jake paul i don't know anyone else with this name, paul i gotta press on um but like that makes sense because like the i guess the idea is like after this cloud burst like there is a large shift like towards libertarianism as like a unifying ideal and so rod paul like becomes like the scion of the united states yeah the the big thing is like the fourth amendment rights become like a huge a huge deal which is uh we all it's like the it's like the right to like the privacy of your personal papers basically i think is what it's like but they like seizure yeah, but they they then like expand like the powers of Fourth Amendment rights protection, so it's like illegal to like <laughs> investigate people if you're not a journalist, basically. Who, who journalists arbiters of the Fourth Amendment, <laughs> right? Um, and then, and which leads us to our main character, Pi, who is basically an unlicensed investigator because, like, yeah, yeah, it's illegal to like take photos of people. It's illegal to, I guess, like divulge anyone's personal details, but. So, and again, this is, I don't want to be too much like cinema sensing the world building here, but like, it seems like some people are cool with showing their face. Uh, P.I., like, his his disguise is just like, he like puts a black streak over his face. Well, he's got that dream coat too, you know? 
You got the dream cut. And also, the ki- like, kids aren't allowed to... Yeah, you're not allowed to use a pseudonym until you're 18. And if you have a criminal record, you might be, like, banned from assuming a pseudonym. Which is, like, that's so... Because, like, America being the way it is, and if there was a push towards libertarianism, I feel like kids, people, parents would push for kids being more private than everybody else. That's, like, a weird... Yeah, it's it's uh, a thing that he again like seems kind of excited about is the idea that like which I think maybe Gramps also says it is that like it's it's nice to imagine that like instead of the world where everything you do when you're 15 is like immortalized on the internet that instead when you eight you turn 18 you basically get like a blank slate where you can like start over and none of the stuff that you did before you were 18 has any impact on your adult life, right. So I, I was sort of thinking about how the, the central conceit of it then becomes like, well, so it's, it's all about like how you investigate things when everyone has like this great desire for privacy. But really, it seems pretty easy <laughs> to investigate things is what I will say. Like, he finds things out pretty easily. Yeah, he d- he he does find things out relatively easily. I mean, it helps that he's got like the his librarian friend who uh, he can, you know, get get into those records with. I mean, I wonder if this was in the email or not. You can illuminate me, David. But I do feel like there was a conversation happening around this time that I think, like, sort of happened. It then, like, sort of peaked around Spotlight or wherever, which is about, like, whether the internet killed noir. And if, like, you can really do noir post-internet because it's just, like, Googling things isn't cinematic or isn't an interesting way to, like, find things out. And I do think about, like, him trying to make a, like, noir thing and tying it to a time when you had to like actually put in do the like the investigating elbow grease and i wonder if those two things were tied to each other yeah i'm I'm gonna have a look and see i don't remember anything like specifically speaking to sort of like the google aspect of research but i do remember one where they're kind of talking about like it's in like the design notes for the office where he's like i want it like I want it grounded in our world. And he's talking, I don't know, there was something in like the original design, but basically he gives like a specific suggestion of like, let's put like a Maltese Falcon poster up in there. Like I want to like really sell like this guy as, as sort of like the classic noir protagonist. Yeah. And wasn't um, another thing in the design notes for the office that like Jim and Dwight should be sitting together. I can't speak to that. Uh, <laughs> here, here's what the original pitch for what was then called the Secret Society says uh, about our hero PI. This a lot of this stuff changes, uh, but it is it is interesting still to read. PI's main weapon is his old school Nikon film camera, which he uses to secretly snap candid photos of misbehaving workers, long lost relatives, potential suitors, etc. He doesn't carry a gun, but because PI has a vast network of clients across Los Angeles who owe him favors, it wouldn't be hard for him to get one. Important note. Unlike some of his more radical peers, PI isn't ideologically opposed to America's new obsession with privacy. He's just a benevolent opportunist who gets off knowing things he's not supposed to know. If you've got him uh, enough cash, he'll get you your story, whether it's an easy puff piece or a more challenging hatchet job. Which, like, does that... I, I don't know if you guys feel like that describes the character who we see in the story. I would say that he is, in some ways, one of the, like, more private characters. Yeah, it's interesting that the that they bring up the idea of, like, 
that he gets off on like having this like vast network of knowledge because he I think the big thing about the character is that like he is very he is not like that that he is very just like very business oriented very like financially motivated where it's like mm-hmm. but I, I mean i guess there maybe is there's like some... artifacts of it like in the opening scene where he's supposed to like seem sort of like very lurid and it's not because he's getting this woman undressing it's because he's getting like this woman's secrets yeah, yeah. but then but then like in terms of like his own person like his own personal proclivities never seem to like trend towards like wanting to yeah know people or like wanting to invade privacy in that like way. he doesn't he doesn't ever seem interested in knowing anything more than he needs to know or what he's hired to know and he f- it seems to me like he feels like people should treat him the same way like yeah. he doesn't appreciate anyone trying to find out more about him than they need to know yeah and i mean he's like he doesn't have a tv like it's like a he he does seem to be more private and uh, it's like more distrustful of people than most of the people he's investigating or working with and he's I kind of the private guy he is a private guy i mean that is just like again a classic noir thing where it's just like well he's a guy who sort of used to have a, a code but now just sort of doesn't give a shit being pulled into a situation in which he's forced to sort of take a side yeah that's the thing is that the the characters, I mean, especially P.I. and, like, Ravina to some extent and Daguerre, like, they do seem very, like, in the tradition of noir characters. And I think I almost feel like the way the world is constructed, even though it is, like, so high concept and so sci-fi, like, it does, it, like you were saying, it lends itself well to this kind of story because there is more legwork to it. and And because, like, it's, like, you would on the surface it's like everyone has their secrets but then this is a very like physical manifestation like everyone is walking around like basically wearing wearing the mask that really we all wear when you <laughs> really think about it very very deeply that <laughs> that this is like a physical manifestation of like the secrets that they're hiding under the surface mm-hmm. i wonder if this comic was written now if everybody would just be wearing like fortnite skins <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's uh i will say i I found the like thing that i was thinking about uh where he specifically mentions the like maltese falcon poster and it doesn't have anything to do with like analog research methods basically but he does say in that like i like martin had sent him some sketches and he's like i'm a little iffy on some of these because like some of these companies can be like pretty litigious so maybe let's stick to like old movie posters what about like i feel like he'd be really into like old black and white detective things so i feel like on one hand like an accurate version of the world definitely would be like a lot more cosplay than just like whatever sort of like random things get thrown together yeah but also i don't think if they were making the comic now that there would be a whole lot more of that especially going like the independent route where like they're not going through like a DC imprint where they can have like people walking around in like Batman and Superman costumes. Yeah, it seems like the most popular mask is a squid head. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but actually, there, there are like a large variety of masks. Like they're like <laughs> they're the sexy masks. <laughs> there's like the classic domino masks. There's like the full headgear. There, there's there's a lot of variety there. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's just like yeah, where I'm like. 
this is um, this all almost seems too ornate. Like I feel like people are giving are putting in too much of an effort. So I guess that is part of, <laughs> part of like his pitch that like after everybody got disconnected from the internet, people started giving more of a shit. So maybe we would go back to it, but I feel like in real life it would just be ninety John Wicks, <laughs> <laughs> or just like ski mask. Yeah. He does write a lot about how like he wants to see like a huge variety of masks, including some people like who aren't really wearing masks, at least as far as you can tell. And that like there should be sort of like an assumption that like whatever you see is not necessarily like the person as they actually are, but that the like range of expressions for that should be basically like as varied as like Martin can possibly make it. Yeah, and I think one of the important things about the concept of the world, and we're doing a really good job of summarizing yeah, the story. Yeah, it was going to be like, always, we should just say what the plot is <laughs> like in five seconds so we can just talk about it. We'll, we'll put a pin in that. We'll come back to that in one second. But the, what I think is very important to the story is the idea that it's not, you're not just, it's not like everyone has one mask. It's the idea, and I think this is like a very online idea as well. I'm actually... Uh, might be writing something about this in the future that we can link to but the idea that like you can present yourself in different like online that you can adopt different you can adopt different names for one but that you can present yourself in a different way depending on the community that you were like running with and like that like that is another manifestation of your identity that you don't just have one false self that you have a number of different false selves that you present to different people depending on the situation right and it's the same sort of way that like in in the same way that people put on masks when they're doing things that they don't want identified with their real identity there are also things that they don't want identified with their assumed identities so they have they have like these layers of of identification and like telling someone the name of one of your pseudonyms or like connecting yourself between pseudonyms is considered like a very like profound act of trust yeah because I mean, just like the real life concept of code switching, which is something that I have like thought about also writing about it. De- and it like makes sense in this world where it'd be like, yeah, if I want to hang out with this sort of people, this is the uh, the identity I would assume. And if I want to hang out with this sort of people, this is the identity I would assume. And I, w- I wouldn't just stick to one if I have the possibility of just like doing a bunch of different things. And then there is like the late in the comic, the very literal like form of code switching of like the guy wearing fake black skin which is again well, again one of those things where i'm just like ryan what are you doing here <laughs> uh i do like that pi after he hits him says i punched him white <laughs> uh okay we i'm calling a moratorium on all discussion until i explain the plot of this comic we follow pi he's a an unlicensed private investigator so as we've alluded to previously all of the professional investigators are journalists. He is hired by a woman named Taj. Well, please acknowledge he is a paparazzi. Yes, a paparazzo, please. Oh. <laughs> he is hired by a woman named Taj. Basically, so what she says is basically that she has secrets in her past and she wants to know, like, basically what's out there and what could be used against her before anyone else can. So he takes this case only for Taj to pretty immediately get killed. And so he begins working with Taj's sister, Ravina, to investigate this further. We find out that what Taj was mixed up with is this guy, Daguerre, who is like the president of television, question And uh, he, so TV, like T-E-E-V-E-E, is like 
the like brand name in television and like sort of the like monolith of the industry. Yes. Uh, and so we find out that Daguerre is basically like this radical and his plan is to restore the internet by launching a satellite and using TV, which now has like surreptitiously had like cameras and microphones installed in it in order to basically reconnect everyone. His end game is a little bit fuzzy. I, I think the idea is that he has like used his position at TV to like smuggle computers into everybody's houses. And then once he connects them, he's going to be like, surprise, like you have computers and they're now all connected to the internet. You're welcome. Like begin, begin your Zoom calls now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's what goes beyond that, like isn't exactly clear, like what he ultimately wants or expects to happen after this takes place. So so they eventually they go to stop it. The rocket takes off or they they stop, they stop the rocket launch. Uh, Daguerre is killed. P.I. is seemingly killed, although it's not clear. We could talk about what the ending uh They says don't or stop implies. the rocket launch. They just stop the successful, like, satellite launch, but in doing so, destroy, like, the flood wall and accidentally yes. flood a huge portion of the city. I don't know. We might get... I guess we might talk about that moment later, but I was just like, this, this is weirdly, like, similar in ending to, like, Blade Runner 2049, which also ends on, like, a huge flood wall thing. Hmm. Forgot about that. I'm forgetting about that as we speak. He like fights the the, the lady in uh, the car. What's her face like? Yeah, on the and then on, oh, in the water yes, and on the yes, beach, yes. and then he pulls Harrison Ford out. There's a lady in the water. Yes, I remember yeah. that movie. Yeah, <laughs> and that water, there's sort of a shape, sure of it. But yeah, is there is there anything else that I'm forgetting that we need to establish? Obviously, yes. There's there's Melanie, his assistant. She for a while is like attacked and kidnapped. There are French guys who are, like, Daguerre's henchmen. There is Nebular, who is his, like, unwilling assistant. But also, like, semi-willing assistant. Yeah. Oh, and, and Gramps, who is... Yes. I, I labeled him as the BKV stand-in to some extent, where, like, <laughs> he is, like, what, like, Gen X or Millennials will become, like, in the future. Yeah, I, I see Gramps less as the BKV stand-in and more as the, like, BKV's, like, concern for the youth of today. Like, I think at this point, he's too old to be Gramps in 2076. Gramps is like somewhere in the back. He describes him as like uh, the like disaffected hipster barista at age like eighty five. <laughs> right, where the bit is just like that. <laughs> the they he really keeps going back to the well of like their parents gave them so many drugs that they're messed yeah. up now. <laughs> yeah, ge- ge- there is an unironic use of Generation ADD. <laughs> there is indeed. <laughs> but also, that's such a weird description. Like, uh, the disaffected hipster... Ver- he's not disaffected. That's not his... He's like... Uh, no, no. He's, he's too he's, affected. Uh, <laughs> he's highly affected. But yes, the big, their big thing is that, like, they really miss the old days. And, like, <laughs> he's always just like... It's it's basically the sure grandma let's get you to bed meme. But it's like, yeah. we used to all be connected and there was a thing called YouTube. <laughs> yeah. The the he's like the uh, point of entry character where it's like he's got dementia, so PI has to like basically keep explaining like that there's no more internet to him, but also the reason that he has dementia is that he took too much riddle. <laughs> it's interesting that you consider the most demented character to be your like point of view character. <laughs> You're like I really see myself in this guy. 
he I, I mean he i think he like objectively is because he's like the person who they have to be like well this is why the world is different every time <laughs> yeah, yeah yes there's a lot of like remember grandpa like this is what happened in history. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he saves, saves the day by knowing what a Zune is and having a power cable for it. <laughs> a great bet. I mean, this is classic Brian K. Vaughn. This is sort of my take on Brian K. Vaughn entirely, which is like, he writes this stuff that is like two or three years ahead of its time, but in a way that's so specific that 10 years later, you're like, oh, this is a little embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's sort of like, like why the last man's take on gender politics the entirety of ex machina even stuff in like saga where it's just like he was he was really doing it at the time and now you look back at it and it's like it it was it's funny that this was considered really doing it at the time (laughs) (laughs) they definitely like a lot of his books are kind of time capsules in a in a funny way i would say even some of his more mainstream stuff like runaways like there's there's some things in there as well for sure that are like right right along those lines too yeah but i i almost i kind of enjoy that element of it like i was watching i was watching halloween h2o last night and like (laughs) speaking of water Sure. shapes within it oh <laughs> shout out to my great okay Emilio, uh, this episode will already have come out many months ago by the time i tell you about this but when we were talking to scott he was talking about because like he talks a lot about the idea of like why do we need a page to be formatted like a page in like a digital world like a comic can be formatted in like any way or shape comics that can be a cube to. Yes, and and we'll actually talk about this because uh, this comic actually does make use, I think, of that formatting. I wouldn't say it's exactly free of the page, but it definitely no. restructures the the traditional comics page. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and so he and so he was talking about like yeah, like uh, like the, like there are comics where like the shape can be important and like all of this, and then like he went on like and then he went on to speak for like another two minutes after that. And then, but I had been waiting so long, I just had to say it. And I was like. Another form of media where the shape is really important, the Halloween franchise. <laughs> and then David was just like silent and stared, like did not understand. And then Scott like charitably laughed and was like, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a classic you bit of just being like, well, I thought of a joke, so now I'm out on this conversation. <laughs> until, I, until I have the opening to make whatever joke I wanted to make. Oh, and they're always they always land well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Like the formatting of the comic is interesting. I'll say because it's like yeah. I've only read it online as like the PDF version. So it's yeah. and it, I do wonder like how does it read on a how does a physical version of it read? Yes, David. I was going to. Oh, it is, it's, it so, is. Oh, okay. Yeah, they they retain the format. It is like uh, I would say the dimensions of it are probably like maybe eight inches tall and then like 12 to 14 across so it's it's almost shaped like a calvin and hobbs album it's like it's it's sort of got like yeah it's sort of got like the more strip shape and and structure as opposed to the page which was also like uh, a marcus martin led thing where he basically like sent sent Vaughn some samples and was like, I'm going to do it like this. And he was like, okay, I'm going to write my normal scripts, but like go off King. And, and so, yeah, the scripts are like pretty, pretty conventional, but uh, I think Martine up front was like, if we're not printing it, I'm not saying we need to go crazy, but I'm not going to do like a standard, like letter size page. And listen, I'm a sucker for that shit. I'll say just like, I, I love it when a, when a comic is just doing stuff with panels. It's just like, mm-hmm. there's plenty of comics. Cause I feel like 
this is like going way back, but my intro to comics or like my perspective on comics is that I'm like sort of more of an art guy, which I, I've listened to your first episode. and I know that both of you are more like the story, the writing aspect of it, but I condolences by the way that you listened to our first episode <laughs> listen i thought it was good it was fun but uh <laughs> but yeah i'm like always a sucker for like when somebody's doing stuff with panels like i really enjoyed that jh williams the third batwoman book where it was just like every every page is just gonna look mm-hmm. insane because we can do that i believe the idea for this was he was like i'm gonna make it fit the aspect ratio of like a monitor so that in theory you can like full screen it yeah, that's Which what I did, cr- and it crazy, looks great. But... <laughs> well, I gotta try that. Um, but yeah, I mean, like the thing that I that I kept coming back to, like in terms of the way I saw, it, is that like it's like it's very like cinemascope almost, or like seventy millimeter, like felt like it's it's yeah. cinematic in like a very like big way. And obviously, like it doesn't necessarily only use like cinematic conventions to it. Like there, it, in the first issue towards the end is like really where you first start to see both like the aesthetic implications of the layout and also like where this comic is going to go stylistically where you have the two pages where it's a uh, Taj and PI having this conversation and their heads are like gigantic on like a third of or maybe half the page and then the rest of it is just like basically creating establishing shots yeah, it's like aspect to aspect around his office. Yeah. Yes, to to use a Scott McCloudism. Uh, but yeah, that's like that. That we was get what it. I was like, you talk to Scott McCloud. <laughs> we all we all listen. Months ago at this point. Um, that, I think that was the page that when I was like sitting next to you at our parents' kitchen table reading it, I like held it up and was like, <laughs> "He's going off in this one." Yeah. This is weir- real widescreen comics. You, go bite it, Brian Hitch or whatever. Yeah. I don't know what that is. So you guys, you guys go off. Brian Hitch is like credited for popularizing like a more widescreen quote unquote style and a more cinematic style in like the authority, I guess would be the main book where he would just do like three panels per page and they're all the full width of the page. The first two like ultimates one or ultimates two. It's very like that. It looks very much like they're trying to make it look like a movie. And I think it looks a little dumb and embarrassing. Well, what about when they talk about casting uh like matthew mcconaughey as ant-man <laughs> that that aged well right we're sticking we're sticking with that um like i mean iron this- man hanging out with shannon elizabeth in space <laughs> another thing that happens in the ultimates <laughs> i mean this is a conversation i had with chris where he, they mentioned to me like that, that you guys were reading um uh, ultimate x-men and I just went into a very long I hate Mark Millar tirade before realizing that you were talking about Brian K. Vaughn. But I was like, he's so cringy. He just like is a guy who loves Hollywood and just like wants to make movies. I think he's the worst. Get him out of my face. And the ultimate, even though they're like, if I look them in objectively, I'm like, these are okay comics. I just read them and I'm like, I hate that this is the pitch for this. Uh, there is a panel where the Hulk smashes or yells Hulk smash Freddie Prince Jr. And uh, if you own the original art to that page, name your price. <laughs> I will pay it. <laughs> I'll double it. Um, but yeah, I, to that point, I think one of the big like boons to this comic is like both that it has this cinema, like you would call it a cinematic style in terms of scope, but it's also... I feel not very cinematic in terms of the art. Like the art is not trying to imitate 
any other form of art. And I think that that like it, 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 it creates, it really leverages the benefits of like sequential art storytelling. I feel like in the way that it lays out its pages in like the things that it chooses to focus on and, and all that stuff. Like I really noticed like those elements of it and like they're, they're very like, they're very flashy in that way from like a layout stylistic standpoint. Yeah, I, I, the one I remember is like when they're like in the car chase and there's like, they're like a shot of them getting shot at a shot of them shooting back. And then like the bottom strip is just like boo, like boom sound with like, the car in silhouette driving i'm like yeah it's cool that you could put all of this in like one page and it's structured that way yeah another like technique he uses a lot is like sort of like stark monochromatic backgrounds like when he wants like a like i'm looking at a panel right now from issue two where it's just like it's the two of them hugging at uh, ravina and pi and they're just like in the middle of like a stark white background and so I, I feel like like that use of like color can be very stark in terms of like creating an effect and like sort of creating adding to like the emotionality of a moment that like just would not be possible in like any other form of storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like the whole I think like the, the opening of issue three is like where I where I really appreciate basically the use of the format, which is like right after he's just been shot he has like a sort of nightmare sequence where like page one is a full page splash page two uh is like three panels page three is like five and then it does like a little backstory with his mom where they do like his origin story and they've got like a flat black background with like a white x through it that is like the crosswalk where she died and then they do like the sequence showing them getting shot which like there's two pages with no dialogue and one is like a row of four panels pulling out from pi like cringing away from the bullet then three panels that are like the two french guys with like the bullet casing like popping out of the gun like in front of their masks and then one that is like the two bullets in flight along the bottom row with the two of them like Ooh. and then the next page is just like this yellow background with the two of them getting hit by the bullets and like the blood spraying. And it's just like, man, great, <laughs> great page. <laughs> great, great, like uh, great pacing between individual pages, like great use of like slowing down time on that one page and then having the next page just be like, bam, like here's the consequences. Like here's the, here's the blood flying and like bodies in motion. A mythic tech. Great stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's like, a good like combo well not combo is not the right but it's like a good balance of sometimes he he like wants to go off and like design something very flashily but he doesn't feel like every single every single page and every single panel needs to be doing that sometimes it can be a little more standard and when he wants to like shoot into action mode or do something a little more emotional then he can bend it towards his will yeah, he knows he like he knows when he needs a full page and that's like the impact. He knows when he wants like a really dense page. He he's he's got a great control of the story. I feel like the colors in this book are also awesome. But just in terms of like the whole aesthetic of like the world. Yeah, like the use of the monochrome backgrounds is part of it. I feel like all the colors of like the costumes and that stuff are also uh also clutch. Who is it that oh it's it's his partner, uh Monsu Vincente. Vicente. 
it's a great it's a great art team uh who knows what they're doing and this is a great like format for them to to go off in for sure yeah i i think the big thing like is that because that i i like the art style as well like there's definitely some stylization to the art and i think mostly when at least when we talk about art david and i we're talking about like literally just like the way they draw (laughs) it's like the way someone would draw how like cyclops looks compared to how someone else would draw cyclops but like i think that this one really stands out in terms of the stylization of like i don't even know how to describe it like layout is one way to describe or like it's almost like the cinematography and like it's it's like the the visual storytelling yeah and like how they compose shots and things like that. And then, like you said, like, like the use of the monochromatic backgrounds, I think, can be really effective. Um, especially, like, a lot of times they'll do that in dialogue scenes where you'll have, like, a wider shot where you're showing, like, them and their surroundings. And that, like, because, like, I'm looking at a sequence here where it's, like, they're just on a street corner. And you start with the establishing shot of the street corner. And then you have, like, Ravina sitting against a wall. And you see, like, part of the wall. But then behind the wall is like just white and then like the insert shots are all on the monochromatic backgrounds like the way that they like jump between having like the more established and also like i'm sure like from an art perspective that that's easier in terms of like the the amount of details you have to add to your background and then like you have the starkness of the the colors as well i think i think about often is one of my favorite comics that i like own every copy of that i because i don't like I don't usually read a lot of like physical comics. It's Planetary, the Warren Ellis comic with John Cassidy. And I remember there's like the third issue, I think, is the cover is like a movie poster sort of pastiche thing. And it and it credits and it's like doing like credits like a movie style, but it says writer Warren Ellis and then director John Cassidy. And I think that thing it Loki very much affected how I think about art that it's just like compositionally incredibly important and just like the like laying out the entire story of it is incredibly important it's not just like how i would think about in a movie cinematography it it like goes beyond that even yeah it's like pretty unusual even for like writers who might have artistic experience i think to like really visualize the entire issue as they're as they're writing the script and like i think that yeah, just the decisions that the that the artist makes about presenting what what is there, even in terms of like adding panels, subtracting panels, like they really do control a lot of the pacing, like not just the book, but individual pages in a way that is like it's not they're they're not just like drawing the pictures that the writer tells them to. Like they're making storytelling decisions that are gonna be good or bad separate from like the story that the writer is telling yeah and just like how somebody's face is drawn because that's just like well that's somebody controlling the acting of it and just like that's very important for the context in which somebody's line is being sold yeah maybe we need to change the format of the show (laughs) and have it be about artists instead of writers um because like no we're still too dumb to talk about artists (laughs) at length every episode (laughs) that's true um but yeah like i i think that's absolutely true like the way and, like, I think Vaughn is a great example of the ways in which a writer can assist with that. Because, like, I mean, like, him and Fiona Staples, it seems like, have a very, like, symbiotic relationship in terms of, like, 
he I think his aesthetic sensibility is like informing a lot of the saga universe as well just like in terms of like them working together to come up with like the characterization and stuff and then then ultimately like it's staples who is like designing it and obviously like drawing it and having all that stuff and like he often is like and in both in this comic and saga is like man that art's crazy huh <laughs> and it's also like I think, like, a good writer like Brian came on and it's, like, strength is, like, character. And I feel like if you have a good handle on character, then the artist knows, like, where to take that. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, there are other people who are maybe not as great as that, where maybe the artist is doing more of a job, on, more more work on that. He he also, I will say, has had some pretty special, like, collaborators over the course of his career. He's worked with some pretty amazing artists, especially in this sort of, like, the post-Runaways era, I guess is how I think about it. No knock on uh, on Adrian Alfona or any of the other artists who, who worked with him earlier on. But, like, the rundown after that is, like, Tony Harris, Fiona Staples, Cliff Chang, Marcos Martin. Am I missing anybody big? Those are those are kind of like the main ones though, and like that that's a pretty that's a pretty impressive lineup of like artistic collaborators. Yeah, and to sort of to the point about Vaughn's strength being characters, I think maybe that that is where I find some difficulty with this book, and this goes back to the noir thing as well. That like I feel like with a noir, the character I never almost never feel like the characters are as fully realized as they could or should be often because they're like conforming to these stereotypes because like PI as a character is very much conforming to the stereotype of like the lone drunken detective who is like, just like is a little bit uh, disaffected and just like, is like he says he's about the money, but really he does care a little. And like, it, it just feels like, it's sort of him playing on easy mode a little bit to like write a character like that, where it's like you could you could literally just say that like his name is PI and he's a detective, <laughs> and I feel like most people could come up with like eighty percent of what the character is. Yeah, but I think like what I think this story doesn't like why it like sort of lacks towards the end to me, even though if I I really like the beginning, is I think that most of those stories I think the what it's trying to arrive at is like some sort of evolution of some sort of like, like, Oh, this person doesn't care at all. And then you find out like what really makes this person tick. And at the end, he's like sort of a different person. And I don't think the comic really does that, that successfully. And also I think movies like that also try to have a deep well of like very interesting side characters. And I don't think, I don't think anyone here is that much of a standout, even if there's like, I mean, maybe Nebular, I think is the name. He's pretty good. I like it. I like Nebular. <laughs> I was about just to make a joke and say, you're not all in on Nebular. <laughs> I, I I like Melody a lot. I think she would be the, the main yeah. standout. But yeah, it's it, there's definitely like, there's a couple of scenes that sort of like suggest his history or his backstory. But I like, there's a, there's a lot of sort of like inference required to a certain extent or, or, not even inference so much as like it's he's just sort of like painted the broad strokes of a very like recognizable character and it's just sort of like you get it yeah that's what noir is i would argue no (laughs) how do you feel this is we after we had that terminator one conversation i then went on a list of just like here's the noir do you like this and you were just like no (laughs) 
But I get, I don't think I asked you about Roger Rabbit. How do you feel about Roger Rabbit? Because that's really a movie I think about when I think about this comic. Yeah, I mean, I'm not that hot on Roger Rabbit, I will say. Like, <laughs> I, I gotta say, I'm pretty low on Roger Rabbit oh, as well as a noir fan. Come on. <laughs> and again, like, I think also I would argue that part of, like, what people like about Roger Rabbit, or, like, part of what the purpose of Roger Rabbit is, is, like, isn't it absurd, this noir thing, that, like, when you, like, juxtapose it next to the cartoonishness of these characters, like, yes. because, like, Bob Hoskins, like, the Bob Hoskins in Roger Rabbit, like, is a cartoon, essentially, <laughs> but he's just, like, uh, he's, like, a Dick Tracy drawing. Yes, but I think why that movie ends up still being great is because I think it, like, sort of it takes the premise all the way and I don't think it's like at the end it's like completely making fun of it. Like there is some like there is some comedy to be mined from the juxtaposition of it, but I don't think it is it ever like tries to undermine it. I guess I also think of these things in concert because this is a very LA comic and it like it's set in LA and has a lot of jokes about specific LA stuff. I mean also another element and like this is like going back to the fourth thing again, but I, another element of it is like I think that the what I find dissatisfying about noir is that the reveal of what like we have been searching for is never as satisfying as like the mystery is setting it up to be because like I feel like like a noir is always going to be like they're looking like it's it's like the the character is in the dark for like at least probably 75% of the movie or the comic or whatever and then it's like you finally get the reveal of what is going on and it's almost never like compelling. I mean like I feel like Watchmen almost is cuz I did think about Watchmen as I was reading this um in terms of like having a detective character who is investigating something and like uncovers this conspiracy. I think that Watchmen is maybe like the best version of like the villain's reveal of like what has been actually going on the whole time. But usually I feel like in a noir it's just like oh my gosh, he's planning to do something really bad. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. That's a bad guy. I mean, I, I feel like the this book gets around that because he gets clued in pretty, like, relatively early. I'd say about halfway through. Like, we get, we get that Daguerre is, like, the TV guy reveal, I think, by, like, issue four, maybe. And then he, he like, he gets the internet piece I think at the end of issue six, which is like not, you know, there's still there's still a lot of runway to go after that point. And I also do think like it was a harder for me to like kind of put myself back in it having already read it before. But I do remember the first time reading it, like Daguerre is the TV guy. I was like, huh? Uh, and the Internet reveal like at that point had been like telegraphed a little bit. But I was like, this is a good like for what this story is about. The bad guy's plan being like. I'm going to become <laughs> the world's like first new ISP. Uh, I was like, this is a good conceit for like his plan. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of good noirs know that like whatever the reveal is, isn't like the final thing really. It, it's more about like what that gets to and how the characters respond to it. Cause it's like, yeah, it's about like ratcheting up the tension. And then the reveal is the thing that like, kind of like finally pushes the dominoes yeah and it's like if like if we're gonna go all the way back to like chinatown or whatever obviously what the what is happening in chinatown 
I think even if you know what the reveal is at the end, I think the end of it is still compelling because it's like about people grasping at straws and not being able to really change what they're dealing with. And I feel like that's always a compelling thing to me and why I enjoy a lot of noir because it goes back to that. of just like we as humans have this obsession with like trying to find out the truth. And most of the times we find out the truth, it turns out that that doesn't, you can't really change anything and, and, and you can't really do anything with that. And just like that frustration is always very compelling to me. Yeah, but maybe the the issue I have is that like it's so often because like the story is going to be it's about a detective who is hired by someone else in order to like find out this thing. And so it creates to some degree like this emotional disconnect where it's like like if if someone just walked up to P.I. and told him like someone's making the Internet, he wouldn't be like whoa, we got to stop this guy. Like, everyone get together. Like, let's ride out and get, go get yeah. this guy. Like, it's more about just, like, him being, like, I got to solve this case. And so that, like, and it's, like, sure, like, ha- having frustration at your job is, like, is something. But then, but, like, I feel like it creates this disconnect where it's, like, the character, like, often does not necessarily care that much about the issue outside of, like, how it directly impacts, like, their livelihood and so maybe that's where like there's some disconnect for me well I, I think that a lot of times like demonstrating how they move from this is a job i was hired to do to this is something that i'm going to do because i'm yeah. personally invested is like the the big sort of thrust yeah, of it that's the juice and i think i agree with you about this comic because i don't think this comic does it does enough of the work to get there i think like you having that problem with this comic is less of a problem with Noir and more, I think. I don't think he does a good enough job of, like, linking those two things together. Because even by mm-hmm. the end, he's still like, well, I'm just trying to save Melody. All this internet stuff that's happening is like, that's just going to happen. And it's like, whatever. I don't really care. Like, I feel like it's almost unsatisfying that they, like, solve the case and things end up well. Like, I feel like that's... I feel like there's a version where you reconnect the internet and that it maybe it has a more interesting ending and implications than they just like sort of solve it by accident or whatever however they end this Mm -hmm. yeah i i think that there is like just sort of a characterization challenge where like there's good i'm not sure what it is like i like pi's backstory to a certain extent like i like like i said that shooting sequence where he has the dream about his mother where they kind of lay it out of like she died at a crosswalk and they're not really sure what happens and her like zombie body is like, well, if only there were more cameras in the world, if only there was one at that intersection, like this is all it takes to get a little boy obsessed with mysteries where I'm like, that's kind of like, you know, it's it's not like the richest character stuff, but it's interesting. And then I think like her funeral is also a really good character thing where She's, she's like presented as like gathered, we're gathered here to bid farewell to our dear friend Penelope Ignatius, aka Patricia Immelman, aka XYZ, aka Miss Exalted, aka Beverly Hilson, aka Tomboy, aka Four Hardwire Six, aka Mom. I'm like, that's, that's primo. That's a great sequence. And like having like little boy Patrick Immelman like standing at the grave and he meets the guy with the dream coat. But I'm just like, I don't feel like I I feel like the weight of that on the character as we know him in like the present day. And maybe part of that is because he's like being cast into this more sort of like aloof detective mold. But it's just the kind of thing where 
on on the page that is harder to carry off of like the hidden depths than it is like on the screen for example yeah and it's like i think yeah i agree with that and i think it's like they never cross they never like cross the t of just like yeah why does that backstory matter to the story that is actually happening to him right now and Mm -hmm. it's almost more interesting if his character was like i love the internet or like that was more of the arc where it's just like him having to be like maybe i would i would have enjoyed if there were more cameras around to find stuff out but this isn't the way to do it and him just having that turn but instead if he's just sort of like non-committal about the whole thing in a way that's a little frustrating Mm -hmm. in a way that's endemic of noir protagonists that they are like disaffected and they don't care and like their whole thing is that like i don't care for like 75 percent of the movie and it's like okay i care now but yeah, like like you said, David, like I don't think that there's any connect. Like, I never get the sense in like his adult life. It's like he's obsessed with mysteries. Like, it's his job. But like he doesn't yeah. seem to he doesn't seem to really love his job. <laughs> like he just seems to do it. it. It again is one of those things that feels like it's carried over from the original concept of him as like an information junkie that like there's still kind of bits and pieces of. But really, like in the in the realized published product. He really is more of a like, like leans more towards like the privacy side of things and is kind of like, I'm just trying to mind my own business and live my life and that that's what everybody else should do too. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in the like 80, 80 issue, like fully actually blown out Ryan K. Bond comic version of, of this, there would be like some arc where he tries to solve his mom's death that is like compelling and actually crosses, like it actually makes all of that stuff makes sense and makes it cohesive. But just with how short this is, it doesn't. That's just like backstory and now this is what he's doing this time. But I feel like they like, I don't even know if the 80 version blown out version of this exists just because like there doesn't, it doesn't feel to me that there is anywhere near the same depth to the character that like you would see in like a Yorick or a, uh, I forget his name, Mayor Mayor 100. Uh, (laughs) But like that, that like, there is there just isn't that much like well Yorick, like the the big thing with Yorick is just that like that whole comic is about like one long like personal growth arc mm-hmm. for him. Or not not even an arc. I think what's great about Y is that it's not like just a very clear like A to B of his maturity, that like he has like different things along the way that sort of inform his growth. And so I think that with this character, like there's just not that much room in terms of growth. And, like, there's not that much in his backstory either to, like, suggest that, like, this is a complex or, like, fully realized character. And I guess, like, maybe we don't, I get, maybe what I'm talking about is that we, we don't really see his emotion that much or, like, his internality. Like, we don't, and again, <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to continue harping on it, but I think it is an issue with the noir genre that the main character has to project like you, you can say like oh like the his whole like relationship with melanie is like he projects that he's tough but really like deep down he cares about her and it's like sure but on the surface what we see is just that like he pretends he doesn't care about her but then i'm like his his internality is only informed by his actions rather than by any kind of like character work or dialogue or any kind of like displayed emotion it's just like we know we we only know he cares about melanie because he goes to save melanie whereas like every nothing else about his 
like actions or his what we see of him would suggest yeah. that. I mean, we, we we could just go back and forth on this all day, but I think it's just like I think you were just like <laughs> I think you're like yeah, this is like noir, so it, it, it this is doing all this noir tropey stuff, so it's bad. And I'm just like I think this is just bad noir. I think I just think <laughs> I just think he's doing it poorly, which is why it's not working. Just just because he doesn't clear the barriers doesn't mean that the barriers can't be cleared and like that's yeah i i'm again i also like noir i think that half the fun is that you're you're saddled with these tropes and that how you navigate them and like use them or subvert them or yeah like solve them is what makes good noir really entertaining and i feel like the things that you're describing as far as like problems with like showing his interiority are again uh, a consequence mostly of like the pace of the story the narrative techniques that are being used as far as like there's no internal monologue there's no like we don't get any window into pi's thoughts and then like the ways that he interacts with other characters he like doesn't does he's not like the most talkative guy but i do think that we get occasional glimpses into like his his like fuller inner life in terms of like his interactions with gramps like when he is trying to convince ravina that he didn't kill taj like those are just harder things to communicate on on the page and i think the shortcoming is more like or like where the where the connection is missed is in getting us from like the sad kid standing next to his mother's grave to the guy who no longer cares and it's like why why did we have like the little boy who's obsessed with mysteries become the guy who is like pounding the pavement because it's his day job yeah and maybe this goes back to you know it's something i think that is sort of a running thread in Vaughn's work, and we talked about it a lot in Saga, is this idea that, like, he kind of has trouble, I feel like, serving two masters in terms of, it seems like he has trouble, he can either advance the plot and, like, write an exciting adventure story where they're solving a mystery and all this stuff, or he can write, like, very realized dialogue right. with like, like a compelling character driven story. Yeah. And I think he can do both. And I think why is like the best example of him being able to sort of juggle both at the same time. But I think what we talked about in saga a lot of times is that like, whenever there is propulsion to the narrative, that's when the characters tend to like lose some of their, not their integrity, but like some of their interestingness. Um, and so maybe like that is like, and maybe like noir to some degree is about revealing character through action in some or like you know not like punching and kicking action but like forward narrative momentum and so like maybe that's just like goes back to his difficulty in yeah. displaying both at the same time well, why i think it worked why i think why his sort of his best work and why it works is because it's like sort of the most episode of his stuff so it like the pacing is he can just be like, well, this is what this issue is. And I can have the cracking dialogue and I can have propulsion, but it doesn't have to like matter that much. And obviously there's like an overall plot, but that's like sort of the weakest part of why or whatever. And the rest of his work, like Saga, which I, I the half I've read it, I enjoy a lot, but I do agree where it's just like, it's sort of trying to be like, well, look at learn the 19,000 things about this world and also look at this in interesting action sequence and also try and figure out why these people are the way they are at the same time. And it's just like, it's some something's gonna be left out. And I think in this comic, I think it is, the thing that is being left out is any sort of arc for that character. 
I will say there there is like a consistent sort of like thing that is brought up where he is talked about by other characters as being like unknowable or at least unknown. So I wonder I wonder if it was deliberate to a certain extent, but then I'm sort of like, but but why? <laughs> like what's what's the what do you accomplish or gain in the story by having the protagonist be completely inscrutable? Yeah, and you know, we haven't talked that much about Ravina and you know, like it on one hand, I feel like it would be kind of hackneyed to have them like have a romance plot and so to some degree I'm like it's probably a good thing that they don't try and like get a romance plot in here but I think also like that is also something you see a lot in noir not necessarily in the same way but like that is where characters like that can display their vulnerability to some degree and also like that's like where like the pillow talk conversations is where like you get a sense of their interiority whether they're like being totally vulnerable with their emotions or not, you at least get some indication of where that like where that wall comes from and like why it's hard to bring it down. I ha- I want to talk about the dream coat briefly. Yes. Look- What's up this- with the dream coat? It looks cool. <laughs> it looks extremely cool. Why does everybody seem to be like this is like the invisibility cloak. Like this is this is. I mean, they specifically say it's not the invisibility cloak, but it's treated in the same way that the invisibility cloak is treated in Harry Potter, and that everyone is like, "Whoa!" Like this thing, it's it's incredible. It's so valuable. Like hang on to that. But also, like it's a semi-effective form of urban camouflage. So like, what's the big deal? Like Strunk is sort of like, it's not that special. But then other characters are like, no, it is that special. Yes, I do have a note here that just says, what does a dream coat do? It seems like it is like a form of camouflage where it's like, it's like, it's like a chameleon coat. It's it's based on like those coats that were at the time, like a thing in Japan where it was sort of like, they, they're sort of like reflective in a way so that you, they, 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 yeah, like you're saying, like a chameleon, it's sort of like draws in whatever is around and like sort of crudely replicates that not so that you're like anything even close to invisible but i think the idea is that like if you're if someone's eye is scanning they're gonna sort of like glide over you more easily because you sort of just look like you don't stand out as much from the things that are around you yeah but also he like is invisible (laughs) at points in this book and like the last image is like ravina has it tied around her head and literally is invisible yeah, but it's also, like, at the same time, like, he is invisible sometimes, but I also feel like I never really saw it used in a way that was, like, like like the invisibility cloak in Harry Potter, where it's, like, that is, like, very directly used in, like, scenes or sequences where it's, like, I'm using the invisibility cloak to do this, and, like, I'm spying on someone. Whereas with this, it's, like, most of the time, the situations in which he uses the dream coat, like, you would also just believe, like, He's really sneaky, so like he got into this place. Yeah. And so it's it is very strange, like to me. Like you said, the way that people keep talking about it and the way it like the last issue has like or maybe it's not the last issue, but one of the later issues has like the origin of the dream coat. Like he it's, sees it's the a funeral, guy. yeah. He's the, there's a guy at his mom's funeral wearing a dream coat. And it's just like okay, so like the dream coat is like representative of some sort of like class of people like is this guy also a detective or like what's the deal here yeah that is true that it like 
apart from that like one chase at the beginning and not even there and it, it, it's never like there's some one sequence where it's like oh he has the dream coat so he got out of this jam it's just like yeah. even that like simple the only other time we really see it in action is like the melody origin scene in which she just sees him <laughs> it's like doesn't work she's just like hey what are you doing yeah yeah I, maybe and even like thematically speaking maybe the uh, again we're now rewriting the book but like maybe the better version of it is like you're invisible to cameras like where it's like some some element of like the technological aspect of it and so it's like in some ways it's a relic because like there aren't really like cameras anymore but then it comes useful for him because he is like getting into these like surreptitious places where that matters i feel like thematically it is like it does connect at some level because it's another way of sort of being like you're you're concealing your true self from the people around you and there's like no way it like it's not an invisibility cloak because there's there's no way to like actually be truly and fully hidden but you can like obfuscate yourself in such a way that like the the parts of you that you're most interested in in sort of concealing or protecting stay safe maybe and you know what we're talking about there <laughs> hey listen that certainly what star maps was was interested in remember star maps he, that's like a fun Love character he's like a he's a fun character <laughs> but yeah i mean i i feel like that's what i was getting at to at the beginning where i was like oh yeah it makes sense that this was much more of a martin thing than like a brian cave thing because this this comic feels like it was like written chronologically in one go and then nobody looked at it and was like well where are these like nine threads you'd like started and then didn't pick up at all where where did like where did those go and he was just like sure have this martin draw whatever you want to (laughs) as i have said of vaughn before he really likes being free of editorial control and i feel that he is someone who really benefits from working with an editor (laughs) yeah yeah, it's like an editor, like truly just somebody to like look at the story and be like, where are all these things going? Like, what is happening here? Yeah, it is funny that P.I.'s like running thread between his like quote unquote mask and his dream code is just like disguises that don't really work. <laughs> <laughs> because like there's never an explanation. Like I was really expecting that it's like, oh, like this is like grease paint and like it like blocks out something or like it makes my face appear some way to someone else but it's like no they never explain yeah. it it's just a black streak across his face and, and I, it's I like, kind of appreciate like that mom i think it's like whenever that conversation is happening her disguise also seems to be just like a streak of grease paint across her eyes i i kind of like his disguise not really being that much of a disguise mostly because like i think it sort of reinforces the idea of like yeah, it's like we're in a world where everyone has like multiple identities, but he doesn't really have multiple identities. He's got like Patrick Immelman, which like isn't his real name, but like who like his real identity is not something that he's invested any time or any energy in. So in a way, like Patrick Immelman is the only like pseudonym that matters. And and it's also a thing he got from his mom. Again, her yeah, name is yeah. Patricia. Well, like one of her pseudonyms is Patricia Immelman. So it's like yeah so it's like it doesn't really matter if his disguise conceals him at all other than like you know there there are times where he adopts like disguises but he's like patrick immelman wearing the disguise and and like 
it doesn't matter if anyone connects something with like Patrick Immelman because or or it does matter if people connect things with Patrick Immelman because there's not really like another identity that he's protecting by using Patrick Immelman. He just like is Patrick Immelman. Is that the name he uses on his notary? He's like his like day job, whatever. (laughs) Is that he's a notary, which is very funny at the Chateau Marmont, which is like run down now. (laughs) I think that it just says notary on the door. If I'm recalling correctly, Patrick Immelman is like the pass is the password basically. Yeah, that he says like he tells it to people to ask for Patrick Immelman when they have a lot of money. But yeah, so where where do we, do we want to talk about the ending? Because I I did have a brief bit of like, I, and I'm not sure that this was intended at all, but I did have this brief moment of speculation about the ending that like, I almost felt like we were to some degree meant to take from the ending that like, that's P.I. and he's wearing a Ravina disguise. <laughs> Which doesn't really make sense, but like, because it's like the whole thing is like we're talking about how like Pi is like missing, but like the Gramps doesn't really believe he's dead because like he's, well, but like, also like he does believe he's dead. Yeah, that uh, that element I I sort of actually appreciate where it's like it's sort of trying to do like well he's so mysterious maybe he's alive like the ending of like Dark Knight Rises or whatever, B- but. I think the point of the scene is more to be like, no, he's dead. And everybody is like trying to convince themselves that he's like more of like a mastermind who pulled this off than he really was. And he just died. Yeah, I think it's quite clear that Gramps does think that he's dead and is insisting that he's not actually dead, partly to like try and encourage Melody and partly to like avoid avoid grieving. Yeah, I think I think the like the ending is just supposed to be like PI is dead, but like the inquisitive spirit lives on in in Ravina now. Like yeah. he sparked this this was like really just the Ravina origin story. Yeah. Listen, I feel like this is a ending that happens a lot in comics. I mean, listen, I love All-Star Superman. It also ends the same way, sort of. Like, it has that sort of thing. <laughs> well, hold on. All-Star Superman ends with Superman inside the sun with a big wrench. Well, yeah, but the last panel is the Superman shield, but instead of the S, it's a two. Yeah, and I, the point of it is more to be like, the spirit of Superman... It will always be a yeah, Superman. the spirit of yeah. Superman lives on, which is sort of like this ending, where it's like the, the spirit of Patrick Immelman will live on. But it's like the reason it sort of doesn't work here is because it's like you never got it like who the fuck is Patrick Hamilton that like so that's sort of the central <laughs> thing that the comic never gets around to yeah and uh, that's a that's also like a very interesting thing that we haven't really talked about is like the extent to which superhero comics are often about identities and secret identities and also like different characters wearing the same identity which uh, maybe that is like somewhat what this ending is alluding to that it's like this mantle is being passed on to like another user of it to some degree that that last panel is also it's just a, it's a great panel yeah uh, like very it's creepy. a very straight it's a very striking image the like slit dream coat fabric with like her that eye private eye <laughs> i will say the first time i read it i was like wait what's happening it was truly like a thing where I, it, it, it's, it's like her head blow, blowing up what's happening here i don't know is this the titular private eye and, and now i was just like oh yeah it's just like she's becoming in the that's like a cool thing or it's pi where an elaborate revita disguise so there's also an element of just like that that that's just rorschach just a person with like a changeable face 
Well, we see a lot of like people wearing fake faces and stuff. We do, yes. There, there's an element of this that I thought was interesting, given the sort of like proximity to Ex Machina, where we talked about. You might recall, uh, Chris, that there's like an issue where he like talks extensively. Mare hundred, this is about like masks, and his like conclusion at the end of the issue is like anyone who has something worth saying should like be willing to say it without a mask on. And then like within a few years, he's writing this book that's like everyone should wear masks all the time. Privacy is extremely important, and we're like throwing it away. <laughs> I also, you know, you do remember what happens at the end of Ex Machina, like... Well, yeah, I, w- I was gonna say, like, I'm sure there's an extent to which, like, and which he has always said, like, Hundred's politics and beliefs were never intended to be, like, a one-to-one reflection of, of Vaughn's, but I do think it's interesting that, like, he he made this sort of, like, case against anonymity, and then has like his his like ode to anonymity yeah listen it, it's the evolution of like youtube comment discourse of just like well and well we need to well or like social media discourse which is funny because this is what this thing is commenting of of just like i feel like the discourse six years ago was like well everybody should use their real legal names and that's the way to stop harassment so that people will will like not will like be tied to that sort of thing and now it's going back mm-hmm. to like well, some people need to have like that distance, and it's like very bad to require everybody to exist as a real person online because that, right. that's like not a way to live. And I guess he went through that entire thing in, in, between Ex Machina and Private Eye. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an interesting conversation because like the the conversation happened like multiple times over the last twenty years, but I feel like the context in which the conversation was happening drastically changed because like early 2000s, it was all about like the war on terror, the Patriot Act, all of that stuff. And now like the conversation has shifted very, and it's like, we're still having the conversation about like online anonymity and like all of this stuff, but it's more just about like, like you said, like harassment and things like that. And I, I mean, it's it's still about domestic terrorism to some extent. <laughs> but yeah, just that, like that that conversation, like it's still relevant, like in the over that fifteen years. But maybe the context in which it's being talked about has changed a little, and that might inform uh, a difference of opinion or a difference of like the way people talk and about it. I think it. that's mm-hmm. the difference between like the two times I read Private Eye and my different responses to like that overall content of like the first time I found it a little like inscrutable, like what side it's on and like what's it tra- trying to say really about that whole thing. And now I sort of more appreciate the how inscrutable it is. I sort of appreciate that it that it's not not just like this is the bad side and this is the good side to it, that it has like a certain element of nuance and just be like, well, this is, these are like the pros and cons of the thing. And all of these people just are choosing to live on one side or the other of it. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's hard to say that like wanting the internet to exist is like fundamentally a good thing, but I feel like most people would rather the internet exist than not exist. And so putting the villain in the role of like being the guy who wants to bring back the internet, maybe like, helps to create some of that ambiguity and like you know like because i think that there is like it this isn't like a solved issue even today like i feel like there are some like comics from 10 years ago or whatever that will like bring up issues and be like wow like really need to think about this and it's like 
I feel like we mostly have a handle on this, <laughs> but, but with this one, like it, it feels like there is still some room for discussion, and like there, like it is very easy to see the pros and cons, and so maybe that helps in terms of like having it not seem super dated or like why does this exist today? Right. They they do also like in this book present it as like they want to bring the internet back to a world where the internet having gone away has given like some very obvious like tangible benefits and like a world in which it's like pretty easy to make the case of like losing the internet made the world better right yeah so do do we want to go anywhere else i i did go in expecting this would be a bit of a shorter episode just because Mm -hmm. like the scope is a little bit smaller and it's very self-contained is there something else is there anything else we want to talk about because like the pacing would you do you consider this a, a fast paced book or a slow paced book because i kind of just all read it in one shot and i couldn't really tell as it was happening like how fast it felt like it was going yeah i consider it pretty fast paced uh by and large i think the like the big pacing surprise it, it comes like in issue 9 when you realize that like they have like solved the mystery and stopped the bad guy but there's still like 10 pages of the issue left and a whole nother issue after that. But in some ways that's, that's almost like the genius. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a galaxy brain level story structure move that I'm a big fan of, but yeah, by and large, I I found it moves pretty fast. Like it's very readable. Vaughn's comics always have like momentum is how I describe it. Like they're designed to make you want to turn the page and read the next issue and having Martin, like able to sort of like within pages manage the pacing to to make it so it's not necessarily always like absolutely breakneck not to say that he like slows things down necessarily but i think that he he keeps it, it like engaging but also like keeps it moving and i think the goal is to like keep it moving by and large yeah yeah i think it's fast paced not obviously as we talked about not always necessarily to its benefit but i think it for sure moves really quick Kayvon is he's good at momentum which is like interesting that he went to write for loss which is like another place where that, that that's like <laughs> its main strengths is just like being a thing that you want to watch every week even if you're just like huh <laughs> yeah i mean like and i think also like the the lost point sort of goes back to the idea that we've talked about a few times with Vaughn, where it's like he is very good at setting up an issue and to, in a way that makes you want to read the next issue and like not not necessarily creating cliffhangers all the time but like sort of giving you enough of the story and like though like it's almost like it's like a phase shifted story where like the story doesn't end on page 20 of the issue the story ends on like page three of the following issue and then like it continues to move and then so you're like you're getting like basically like I don't know, like the end of the second act almost is like the end of an issue. And then the, the next issue will resolve that and then start a new thing. Yeah. Usually. I mean, it's like yeah. very modern prestige television pacing. I was just like the <laughs> climax is the penultimate episode. Every, everything seems like it's ending like three minutes before. So you can resolve it on the next episode. It's like very that. Yeah. It's, it's like he, he always has a lot of threads on the go. So 
he can like create a sense of satisfaction and resolution by tying off some of them but he always leaves like he always ends on one of the threads like dangling over into the next issue so that you're still like yeah. even though i feel like i read that issue and i got satisfaction and like something that i was interested in got resolution there's either something new or something that wasn't resolved but was like advanced or pulled along and is like seeded into the next one so that i'm like yeah. well I'm invested in that now, so I guess I'm reading the next issue. And in a way that's, like, pretty good and, like, not insanely manipulative. Because it's, like, a huge problem I had with, like, the Netflix Marvel shows. That <laughs> all those shows were truly, like, designed in a way where if you, like, watch any specific episode, you were just like, oh, well, I got nothing from that. I guess I need to watch the next episode to get whatever I need to get. <laughs> and it's like, I truly watched, like, five seasons of those of those different TV shows. And at the end, I was like, I don't think I like any of them. But every all of them were designed <laughs> in a way where I just, like, I just have to keep watching this. And so it's not quite that bad. Yeah. And I think, like, I don't see it as, like, any kind of, like, craven or, like, cynical thing on his end that he is, like, intending to create it this way in order to, like, sell more comic books. I just think that, like, he is writing the thing that he finds to be exciting. Yep. Well, ready for awards talk? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, did, we didn't do my famous segment. Oh, yeah, we didn't. Just what is going on here, which is, it's a great cover. It's so th this is the private eye number one. It's also the cover of the trade, right, David? I believe so. Yeah, where he's like, um, it's the dream coat face. Yeah. So we're seeing P.I. from the back with the dream coat face again. Why does the dream coat have like a big face drawn on it? I, I think that's just like a fun visual thing. Yeah, I think so. It's it's um, it's like um it's like a Cheshire cat thing. I think especially with like the uh, yeah. the disappearing and like you know the face is sort of the last thing that fades. Right. Um, and it's on, like, this, like, very monochromatic, like, pretty yellow background with, like, you seeing the variety of the different people and characters that, uh, that are within it. Uh, I think that, like, this is a great example of the way, that, like, the widescreen format can really, like, create cool versions of, like, scenes and, like, sort of, like, illustrate a scene in a way that you might not see otherwise. Because I don't think you would really necessarily have this kind of perspective where you're over the shoulder, the character's on one side, and then you have the rest of the world sort of, like, splayed out, going, like, right to left almost. So I think it is, like, very much a use of that layout that we were talking about earlier. Yep. It's cool. It looks cool. <laughs> Anyways, I agree. Good. Okay, David, <laughs> Emilio, if you haven't heard this part of the show, this is where David goes on a five-minute discussion of awards. And do, do you have any information about sales on this one? Well, no, not um, not in terms of like the single issues. I don't think that that data is out there, unfortunately. I, I mean, I will say I am like my podcast is about film festivals and that that will <laughs> occasionally deep into like dive into like award stuff and like Oscar stuff. I think it does. It has like when I've been into comics, extended into the Eisner's, which I do find is like a pretty interesting awards show. Yeah, it's it's like there's nothing that really has the same sort of like prestige level as the Oscars in comics, but I think the Eisners are the closest thing. And then the Harveys like in almost like a reverse Golden Globes thing is like sort of like 
it doesn't carry the same prestige for some reason but like all the nerds are sort of like but it's the thinking man's award show that acknowledges sort of like the the off the beaten path comics that you know these these man children going to the comic shop every week to read their spider-man stories would never dare recognize (laughs) it's it's the gothams of comics yeah uh yeah So this this was a winner uh, for best digital comic at uh, at the old Eisner's in uh, 2015, and I believe it also won the Harvey for best web comic, which is an interesting classification. But I guess like they differentiate like digital versus web. Oh no, I'm misremembering. It won the Eisner for best digital slash web comic and the Harvey for best online comics work. But this isn't an offline comics work, am I right? <laughs> uh, I believe that uh, Vaughn is best writer this year, but it's like, you know, for for everything. Twenty fifteen, I am looking at it, and it seems like not, it seems like he won two years straight for Saga, and then oh, this this may be the off year when uh, when <laughs> the streak yes, finally ended. About, he they do win best continuing series for Saga. Yes, that's right. But we yes, we've talked a lot about how awarded a saga was, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, like it's it's interesting because like at what point does the line of it, it's interesting because like when you have something like this where it's you know it was it's a comic it was created like by established comics veterans. And like, like for all, like, the, what is the functional difference? I guess is what I'm saying between this and like a comic that was published physically, but it gets put into this like unique category. And so I guess like at this point, like, like where is the line? Like, what is the purpose of the line? Is yeah, my question. I I would say the the line is it has to be digital first at the very least. And I think the it's a good question. I think the purpose of the line was originally to like give attention and recognition to to like yeah to digital comics with the recognition that that was sort of like an area where like underground comics kind of lives and thrives and so like to that end awarding like the private eye by Brian K. Vaughn and Marcos Martin is sort of like contrary to that ethos but I do think that in terms of like not that this has anything to do with like the quality of like the comic itself, but the the fact that the like they created Panel Syndicate to distribute it themselves is sort of like a revolutionary move that is very in the spirit of underground comics, and certainly it is like an independent comic, if not necessarily underground. So I'm not like totally offended by <laughs> by that win or by that classification. I think they do now separate out webcomic, which I think is like good and right and fair, and that like truly independent webcomic artists should be able to be recognized without having to compete against like Marvel and DC like digital first comics. The uh, the 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 winner. So 2015, the winner is the Private Eye. In 2014, the the winner in the same category is the oatmeal, <laughs> which is just like a crazy comparison between the two. I feel yes, like yes, it is, and and Bandette cleaning up uh, in 2013, 16, 17, like that is a tr- a, a true like like digital first comicsology like exclusive title that again is also very different from web comics. 
So it was 2017 that they separated out webcomic into its own category, and they have been consistent in like actually awarding it to webcomics and not just like digital comics. Yeah. Which I approve of. In uh, the defending champion of the best digital comic is a panel syndicate comic. It's, it is, yes. It's Friday by Ed yes. Brubaker and Marcos Martin. Which uh, you would, I think, Emilio probably really enjoy because the premise is... Have you read it? No, I mean, it's one of those things where I I have come on here as a, like the noir fan, noir defender, and I have never <laughs> read and I have never read any of those Brubaker comics, which I really should. Oh yeah, he's he's like the noir guy uh, in comics, certainly. We can have you back when we do Brubaker. Yeah, that's that's gonna be quite a quite a haul. It's one of our one of our like ten white whales, from <laughs> <laughs> like figuring out how to cover a given creator's work. Friday, the concept is like she was this like encyclopedia brown style like kid detective uh, and then kind of like grew out of it and went off to university and then she's back home uh for like christmas break and her old like kid detective partner is like drags her back in to help him with this case that quickly turns out to be like very horrifying (laughs) which he like sells as like it's post ya and i'm like perfect let me mainline that yeah so it's basically the film the kid detective yes but it came out before the kid detective i believe well salute to that four stars from david yep on the kid detective yeah any ratings on friday uh friday i've only read the first issue so far um and there's only three out it's a it's i will say it's got a pretty uh slow and steady release schedule but the first issue was great uh marcus martin and ed brubaker is uh, a match made in heaven yeah panel syndicate it's it's kind of weird maybe it's not weird i don't know it they for a while it was still just like the brian k vaughn and marcus martin thing they did another book together barrier through there and then they did like their their walking dead thing and they have like slowly brought other creators sort of like into that fold and and released other stuff but not like a ton of other stuff but it's also like not all stuff that is from like creators that necessarily someone who like primarily reads marvel and dc stuff would recognize yeah so i'm like it's it's obviously something that like they're finding success with for creators who don't necessarily have like the huge name recognition but for whatever reason, it's still not like really a highly utilized platform. Like I, they they put out like one new title a year tops, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it is. It probably does eventually lead back to like what you said at the beginning, where it's like, well, if you don't have like name recognition and like a brand, is anybody going to actually like buy into this thing for you? Right. And by the way, Got the Runs is also pay what you want. Uh, and so if you're interested in <laughs> supporting us, let me know and I will send you a PayPal link. Yeah. Well, hold on. It's pay what you can, not pay what you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, diff- different places. Uh... What if you send out a PayPal link and people started asking you for money? <laughs> I have disabled that function. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so so. It wins in like the digital comics of both the big awards. I think it was nominated for the Eisner for best limited series, but uh, no, no joy there. Nothing for Marcos Martin or Munsa Vincente, which is criminal and tragic. Wow, criminal and tragic. Yeah, which criminal by Ed Brubaker uh, and Sean <laughs> Phillips, another great noir book. The hardcover print edition came out in December 2015. 
tops the uh, the trade paperback sales lists with just shy of 8,000 copies sold in the first month, up about almost 2,500 on the next closest thing, which is Harley Quinn, uh, and by far the number one leader in uh, in terms of dollars as well. So a big seller once it went into print. Reminds me of uh, Norman Bates's house. Because it's got a big seller? Yeah. Isn't she in the attic? You gotta watch the film, David. <laughs> I won't I won't spoil it. Let's just say there's something going on with his mom. <laughs> e e e e etc. Sure. That's all I've got uh, for sales talk. Yeah. It, it predictably as as everything that Brian K. Vaughn makes pretty much except for Swamp Thing, uh made money. People can't get enough. Yeah. We'll say, and now we're just going to talk, I'm gonna just going to ask you questions about your podcast, because this is w- what I've decided to come on here and do. That's it. <laughs> I will say, that's exactly what Scott McCloud did, more or less. Uh, but please, go ahead. Because it's like, I appreciate the concept of your podcast, because I think it's a fun lens to uh, see things through, to, like when talking about comics and talking about like the evolution of them. But it's like... I feel like most good writers, it, this would be a nightmare to do for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, I will say, I don't want to spoil. Uh, we have our next two, since this is like near the end of uh, Vaughn, I can sort of at least start to tease things. We have our next two creators like planned out and they're quite short. Uh, both of the, well, relatively speaking, um, and I think, so I think generally, like, our goal is to, like... Break up the big ones with some smaller ones. Yes, precisely. But also, like, we do have possible... There's a tab on our spreadsheet that's possible future series. And it's, like, there's a, probably about 10 creators here that David has mapped out. And it comprises, like, 250 <laughs> like, cells in the spreadsheet. So, like, so there is definitely that element of it where like i think at some point we might have to get even more like picky about what we choose to cover where it's like maybe we don't do like four episodes on one book especially when it's like a run where it's like someone wrote avengers for 50 issues like maybe we don't do like four episodes on avengers or or even just like one i like because i would really like to talk about Brian Michael Bendis, yeah. who I think is like a very fascinating creator and and someone who really has like influenced the shape of corporate comics over like in the 21st century. But he just has written so much yeah, stuff like, that I'm that's like, a nightmare. Maybe, yeah. So I'm like, maybe we should just do his like pre Avengers stuff because that's still like a pretty meaty amount of content. But you get like his independent days and his early Marvel days and you chart sort of like the rise to power. And then when he starts Avengers, he's basically like the primary creative voice in the Marvel universe. And it's like that's almost like its own thing that's worth exploring separately is is his kind of like yeah. peak Marvel powers days and like latter days. And then his DC stuff could then again also probably be its own separate thing to do later yeah because it's like i'm looking at the best writer category at the eisners and uh, i'm just like yeah <laughs> alan moore alan moore that's a nightmare to do neil gaiman is like that's pretty manageable i've got i've got no spoilers but i do have gaiman on the list and it is 12 
12 episodes. Now, that doesn't include some of his more recent stuff. Like, um, the, he's done a, a few, like, graphic novels lately that are, like, girls you talk to at parties or something like that. But How to talk at girl at parties? Yeah, the, something like that. We've all seen that movie. That we've all, we all, we've all seen the Nicole Kidman movie based on that comic. <laughs> it is totally a memorable movie and not a very boring piece of shit. uh he's he's an easier one because he was like now i'm off to write novels (laughs) yeah yeah that's where i was like where where it's like i guess it's easy but it's also like almost like does not do the context of him having basically an entire other career like yes do that yeah and it's just like more alan moore garth yeah there there's some creators on here for sure some of whom are like pretty recognizable and big name and some of whom have like not really worked in the big two or worked less in the big two who are in the sort of like six to twelve episode range that keeps it manageable but then there's also like kurt busick is on here and is like 25 (laughs) so you know it's uh it's all over the place a little bit yeah. Another another thing I wanted to mention is um, actually, Private Eye. There were moments that really reminded me of Frank Miller, both in terms of like writing and art style, and like having like a redheaded teenager yeah. who was like <laughs> o- was often drawn unflatteringly. I mean, who who does who does Frank Miller draw flattering? King Leonidas of Sparta. <laughs> yeah. No. Even at that point, he's leaned like pretty hard into the into the pretty stylish stylized yeah. uh realm i think the last time he draws people that look like human <laughs> beings is probably daredevil probably. that's kind of the last time he works in sort of like the marvel house style and then he does ronin at dc which is kind of like the beginning of his like starts he starts incorporating like some more manga elements in his art at that point and then like dark knight returns is pretty conventional for the most part but some of his like hallmarks are so weird yeah and and some of his hallmarks are there and batman is like huge in, in every panel and then like yeah by the time you get to like sin city and 300 and and dark knight strikes again it's just like he's he's gone totally gonzo as far as the style yeah. yeah. And in terms of uh in terms of people we would cover, Frank Miller is someone who we we discussed not in terms of like anything happening imminently, but we're just discussing him as a concept. He's surprisingly long. And also a, just a fascinating person. <laughs> yeah, well and, and also there's <laughs> and sort of cool like guy. <laughs> there's sort of a hard cutoff date on him where it's like yeah, there, exactly. you certainly reach a point where it stops being like worth talking about like i don't think anyone is begging for like a deep dive on holy terror or like dark knight 3 or like i'm just sort of sick of where i'm like holy terror is what because it's like dark knight returns we all we all know dark knight returns what's there to talk about dark knight returns holy terror is the stuff that i'm just like what are you doing like (laughs) what's there to talk about with holy terror i feel like it would be like half an hour of us just being like so then this happens and you know that's pretty racist and appalling Yep, and then this then, happens, and you know yeah. that's pretty racist and appalling. <laughs> but I think the interesting arc is that, is, is that I was just, a person who was just like, oh yeah, he's like fully uh, out there, like he's not worth like discussing anymore. Then, I, but then I hear it all the time that like those new Dark Knight like returns r- r- universe books are like actually decent and like maybe they're he's, like, like not fine a anymore. And I'm, I'm just like, what's happening with him? Who knows? Only for you, <laughs> got the runs to part. Yeah, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, so we'll see you in like five years for the <laughs> series. Yeah. 
Because it's like, I don't have any interesting pitch of who to do. Because it's like, yeah, everybody who I've read comics by is just like, yeah, I like Grant Morrison. What, what can you do? What do you want to do there? Like, I like Mark Wade. Um, but yes, but I think uh, if there are no further questions from our interviewer, that that is going to do it. I feel like I feel like that is you asking me not to have any more questions. But uh... <laughs> no, if you have more questions, by no, all go means, ahead. And, and, this is end the show. It's fine. This is a very like self serving uh, segment of the show. But I suppose that will do it uh, for this episode of Got the Runs. Emilio, thank you so much for joining us. It was. A pleasure to have you. You are the Scott McLeod, uh, a worthy successor. Would you like to tell people about your lovely podcast and where they can find it? My podcast is called Can I Kick It? You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. It's uh, can spelled like the Can Film Festival. I guess it's a comics podcast, so I might have to explain that. But it's C-A-N-N-E-S-I-Kick-It? question mark. And uh, we talk about film festival stuff, weird art movies, but I think we're pretty accessible. I think it's like we try to be we try to just have normal conversations and not be super highfalutin about movies that are pretty <laughs> highfalutin by themselves and sorry i i is spelt like in eisner's like ei or <laughs> he doesn't like it folks <laughs> he, just, he talks to me on a regular basis he knows what's up yeah. um but yes and the and the twitter for that is of course at cans i kick it you can follow us at at got the runs pod you can email us at got the runs pod at gmail.com right david what are you expecting people to email you with questions mail we, we, we've said that in in a couple of years when we get enough <laughs> questions we will do a mailbag so be on the lookout for that and send us your positive thoughts on that <laughs> uh Give us two stars on iTunes. <laughs> Love to be like, yeah, send me all your positive feedback. Tell me all the things you like about the podcast. Mm-hmm. You can tweet your dislikes to Can I Kick It? And that's Can Like the <laughs> Film Festival. <laughs> uh, don't forget that Emilio said that you probably don't know what a film festival is because you read comic books. <laughs> I just meant that if I just say Can I Kick It? Most people will be like, like the word, like the phrase Can I Kick It? Or the po- very popular song called Can I Kick It? Spelled C-A-N. Like the game that uh, Gumby and Pokey are playing in Gumby's Winter F- uh, Summer Fun Special Number 1. But join us next week. We will be starting the final uh, little three-episode arc here of our Brian K. Vaughn series. We will be discussing the first ten issues of Paper Girls. Please remember to do all the things. Uh, and until next time, do you know our famous sign-off? No. <laughs> we have to. We, a good bit is that we have to teach guests <laughs> our sign-off. We we like to say in unison at the end of the episode to be continued. Uh, So if you're all ready, then until next time, for Emilio, David, and myself, to to be continued. Oh, you assume we would be going quickly? No, no. I mean, maybe I'll say it on the podcast, but I have listened to some episodes and I do think this podcast is good.